message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Alright, well if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Uh, this is the next to the last book in the Old Testament, so if you find Matthew, back up just a little bit. Zechariah, we've been going through this prophecy here for a few weeks now. Uh, today's message is a little bit different. It's a little bit unique because, you know, Old Testament prophecy, it's, a little, it's just written differently. The subject matter is a little different. But today, we'll actually be looking at three chapters as a kind of an overview because of the information contained there. Zechariah was given several visions from God to give to God's people, to speak directly to their situation, to give them instruction and point them in the right direction. Well, the visions we'll see today, four more in a series of eight, and so uh, we're going to look at several different ones. These are actually the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth visions that God's given this prophet to give to the people. So I'm going to, while I'll read all three chapters, because they're, they're brief as far as chapters go, but uh, the, the message contained there is a little bit different, so it's, I don't want you to get, uh, I don't want you to see, oh, three chapters, good grief, we're going to be here all day. Uh, not so much. It'll, it'll be okay. But uh, as you're finding your place there in Zechariah, I want you to think about, this, this will help, I think. This will help. Uh, if you remember, Charles Dickens, back in about 1843, I think it was, he published a story called Christmas Carol. Familiar with that? It's the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. And he was visited by some ghosts, right? Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. Well, if you keep that concept kind of in your mind, it is eerily similar to Zechariah in this particular section because the Bible tells us that Zechariah was given all these visions in one night. And there was an angel there that was guiding him and interpreting some things for him to understand what he was seeing so he could take the message and give it to God's people so they'd receive God's Word and then they'd, for lack of a better term, straighten up and fly right, pretty much, okay? So, so God's giving His Word to the people, but in a kind of an unorthodox manner. So uh, just kind of keep that idea in your mind because there are four clear visions and an angel that's present to explain and convey the message that's embodied in the vision so I want to read for us just um, so we'll have the full picture here. I want to read chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Zechariah. And then there's several things. And here's the overarching uh, theme, okay? There's a theme here. The Spirit of God is powerful. Uh, I think I can make a statement like that. And if you have been following Jesus for any period of time you've probably encountered some situation or circumstance that has brought that principle to the forefront of your life. 
God, God's powerful. I mean, He's God, right? Created everything. He spoke it into existence. He's powerful. But God exists in a unique way as well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so sometimes the Holy Spirit's like the red-headed stepchild of the Trinity. Sometimes, yeah, sorry about that, Chris. But uh, sometimes the uh, Holy Spirit gets kind of neglected. And, and uh, that's not, not very uh, appropriate. The Holy Spirit, think about this. What, what has been the role of the Spirit historically? The Spirit was hovering over things at the beginning, right? Look at Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit's hovering. Look at the the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit descends in the form of a dove. Look at the New Testament. The Holy Spirit comes down in power at Pentecost and that's the beginning of the New Testament church. Uh, the kind of the framework for the whole New Testament, all the letters. And, and so the Holy Spirit is extremely important and should not be neglected. In, in fact, some years ago, um, a pastor from California named Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God, specifically about the Holy Spirit. And why would you even be prompted to write something like that if, if it weren't, uh, unfortunately, uh, maybe forgotten the Holy Spirit is forgotten too often. So let me read this scripture for us. And hopefully we'll see some truth, some uh, principles. There's personal application uh, galore in this passage. And so uh, let's read the scriptures together. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Zechariah. Here's what the Bible tells us, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me up like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. He said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lamp stand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it, and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you'll become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And again I lifted my eyes and I saw... 
Behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Now just for uh, clarification, a cubit in, in the Old Testament measurements, a, one cubit is like 18 inches. So this is huge, right? 20, 20 times 18 by 10 by 18. So this is a, a big flying scroll. Verse 3, Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land, for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket. Literally, ephah is the term. It's a, it's a term of measurement. Like a, it's like a, one ephah is like 29 quarts. Or 39 quarts. Yeah, 39 quarts. So that's it's a big measurement. This is a basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity, their sin in all the land. And behold, the, the lead cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket, and he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket, thrust down the lead weight on its opening. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Now this, this last section I'm going to read, those were the four visions. This last section is not really a vision, but it's kind of a, a conclusion to the four visions. Verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helene, Tobijah, 
Shediah, and him the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you'll take this word, help us to understand, and then help us to do what it says, apply it to our lives, so that you'll be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I know that's a lot, and I know it seems like, uh, what does all this mean? The Old Testament is so difficult, and I can understand that. I identify, I identify. But let, let me tell you this one helpful principle. When we read the Old Testament and when we take the extra time and effort, because I acknowledge it's extra time and effort it seems, to really dig in and try to understand and research what is happening here, the context. Remember, we always, we always talk about context. Context is king when it comes to understanding anything literary, especially Scripture. If we don't know when it's happening, where it's happening, who's saying it, who they're saying it to... The, the circumstances that are surrounding the writing, then we will we'll never understand, right? So we know Zechariah is a prophet. God is speaking to him to tell God's people, Israel. We know that it's about 520 B.C., so about 500 years before Jesus was born. We know that the uh, people of God were in exile, 586 B.C., so they were in captivity, now they're coming back. And so they're having to rebuild some things. The temple of God needs to be rebuilt. We hear, heard uh, words about this particular ruler, Zerubbabel, being commissioned to re help rebuild the temple. So there's a lot of things going on with God's people. But here's the overarching theme that should be uh, linked to all the prophets. Okay? This might help you understand not just this prophecy, but you have so many Old Testament prophets the twelve minor prophets, which are the last twelve in the Old Testament that we're, we've been going through. But then you also have more major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And, and you read those and sometimes it's like, I just, just makes no sense, I just don't get it. Here's the theme that unlocks the prophets. In general terms, every single one of them is meant... To point you to Jesus. The big picture of the Bible. Creation. God made everything. There was perfect harmony. Per harmony between God and creation. Harmony between God and man. Harmony between man and creation. Everything was just as it was meant to be. Then something went wrong. Sin entered the picture, right? Man rebelled against God. Threw all the harmony into chaos. So there was creation, then there was a fall by sin. Then from that point, all the way until Jesus came, there was this looking forward. All the words in the Old Testament from that point forward point us to, hey, God's going to fix this. Man's rebelled against God, but He's, he's going to fix it. He's going to send someone to rescue mankind. His name's Jesus. And so when we get to the New Testament... That day finally came, and Jesus comes in the form of a man. He's born of a virgin. He's born in humble circumstances. He grows up. He lives a human but sinless life. 
He lives the life we were meant to live. Following the Word of God. Following the will of God. Honoring God. And so then He willingly lays down His life as a perfect sinless sacrifice to satisfy the righteous requirement of God's law. And He did that in our place, on a cross for our sins. He, he stood in our place. And because of that, all who believe in Him and trust in Jesus can be forgiven of their sins and receive eternal life and be with, with God in heaven. And so there will come a day when God will restore all things. Jesus will come back. So the four major plot movements of the Bible, creation, fall, rescue, and then restoration, tells the story of the whole Bible. So we're in this piece of Scripture here in Zechariah in one of the minor prophets that God's still speaking to His people and He's pointing their attention to what's ahead. He's trying to take their focus off their circumstances and their difficulties and their challenges, which are many and, and all, you know, quite often brought about by their own rebellion and their own sinfulness. But He's trying to, to refocus them. So guess what He's trying to do to us? Refocus. We can't be bogged down by all our circumstances to the extent we take our eyes off of Jesus and we forget what, what Jesus came to do and we're just so worried about everything going on around us, uh, we forget that, hey, God's got something to say about your, your circumstances. God's, God's got something to say about your life. And it's all about turning your focus, changing your perspective. So when we look at these visions, and just briefly, in a, in a kind of a summary way, I want to look at each of these four visions and offer some personal application to us as we understand what's going on, okay? So, so I just want you to know how we're going to make use of our time this morning. We're going to take each vision one by one and see the application that we can, we can receive for our lives. So first of all, the fifth vision. This is chapter 4, the whole of chapter 4, 14 verses. The golden lampstand. So, Zechariah sees this golden lampstand. He sees some, some decoration, as it were, around this. He sees some olive trees, some branches. He, he's not sure what to make of all this, but the angel is there to kind of parse that for him. But there's three different things that we can see in this first vision that will help us. First of all, the Spirit of God conquers great obstacles. The Spirit of God conquers great obstacles. One of the key verses in this first of our three chapters here, Zechariah 4, verse 6. This is a verse that's quoted often. And, and sometimes it's quoted, but uh, the address isn't mentioned like... Wait, that's in the Bible somewhere. Where's that? Oh, Zechariah 4, 6, right here. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. We think about that. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It's almost a foreshadowing of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9 when he's pleading with God, help me out here, I've got problems, I need help. I can't do this by myself. And what does God say? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. 
my power is perfected in your weakness. So, here God's telling His people through Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 6, not by might, not by power, by my Spirit, says the Lord. You can't do it on your own. You're fooling yourself if you think you have enough strength or fortitude or knowledge or whatever it is you need to fix your problem. You can't fix your problem. That's why Jesus is here. That's why we need Jesus. We have to get to the end of ourselves to realize often, oh, (laughs) that's why I need God so much. Because I was never meant to be able to handle these things on my own. I was always meant to look to Jesus. That's kind of the whole point. That's the reason God gave the law to His people. To demonstrate, hey, guess what? The only way you're going to be right with me is to keep all this law. Oh yeah, that's right. You, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to help you. Here's my son. He's going to take your place. He's going to handle that for you. So that's why we need Jesus. And so here it's, it's almost like a foreshadowing of this same principle. God, through His Spirit, conquers great obstacles. So that's obstacles in our life, our personal application. You got some, you got some problems? You got difficulties, challenges? Are there any obstacles in your life? I know somebody who can help with that. His name is Jesus. There's nothing He can't help you with. His Word, either in specificity or in principle, His Word speaks to everything we deal with in our lives. That's why when you go over to Hebrews chapter 4 and you read, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness. We have one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet He was without sin. Therefore, we can approach boldly the throne of grace to find all the grace and mercy we need to help us. That's who Jesus is. The Spirit of God conquers great obstacles. Also, the Spirit of God overcomes small beginnings. When you get to verse 8, 9, and 10, chapter 4, small beginnings. Zerubbabel the leader at the time, he had started on the temple and everybody was looking like, it's going to take you forever, man. This is not happening. Well, guess who's going to help with that? God. Even though it started small, God's going to see it through. Right? We trust in the Lord. So, here's our personal application. Do things ever appear to you insurmountable? How am I ever going to accomplish this? This is just this is too much. I, I can't do this. The Spirit of God overcomes small beginnings. We're, we're, we're being asked to focus on Jesus. Take your cares and your concerns and take them to Jesus. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on Him. He cares for you. Right? But also, the Spirit of God uses unlikely people. The Spirit of God uses unlikely people. What's the application for us in that? Maybe you want to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 
And you want to think about how Paul reminded the church, hey you guys, remember when Jesus got a hold of you and your life? Do you remember what the world thought of you? He says there weren't many strong, there weren't many intellectually smart, there weren't many noble uh, when you were called to salvation. And, and then he says God uses the weak things to shame the strong. He uses the things in, in the world's eyes who are, are not powerful to shame the things the world thinks are powerful. He uses the, the most unlikely people to accomplish His work. You know why He does that? That way when the work's done and everybody's looking around like, how in the world did that happen? Then nobody gets the glory except God. Right? That's the whole point. If God uses who the world thinks is the most awesome, then what's going to be the tendency? Oh, well, look, well, of course He used that guy. I mean, because that guy's amazing. He's got all these talents and abilities, so why wouldn't He use that? No, no. no God's looking for those who are not so strong, who are not so capable. So that way, when God uses them to accomplish great things, God gets all the glory. Because then we can honestly say, there's no way under heaven I could have done this without Jesus. Does that make sense? So the Spirit conquers great obstacles. The Spirit overcomes small beginnings. The Spirit uses unlikely people. And by the way, uh, in the last few verses of chapter 4, this picture of olive trees and oil and all this stuff, the true supply of oil in this little illustration is from the one who is our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. He gives us the Holy Spirit in abundance. Right? And, and by the way, Jesus was an unlikely Messiah in the world's perspective. When, when the people were looking for a king and a Messiah, they weren't looking for a baby born in a barn. They were looking for some majestic entrance with all the pomp and circumstance and some uh, military conqueror or you know somebody like that. They weren't looking for the little baby. So that's the golden lampstand. Then we move to chapter 5. And in the first part of chapter 5 we see this flying scroll. So here we see that the Spirit of God reveals sin. And very specifically, just in those four verses... There's a mention of the thief and the one who swears falsely, like stealing and lying are representative of all these other sins. And so it's a way of saying that God is going to judge the sin in the land. So there's a progression here, moving through this prophecy from chapter 4 to chapter 5. There's a, a, a principle here that God is going to judge sin. So what's our personal application of that principle? The Spirit of God gives us conviction, right? We get that unsettled feeling. We get that, that voice speaking, to, this is not what, what God wants for you. This is harmful to you. It's not glorifying to God. There's, there's consequences here. You need to back up from this direction. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. Conviction of sin. The Spirit of God reveals that to us. That's the message of the flying scroll in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The next vision, the woman in the basket, verses 5 through 11, this is a principle of the Spirit of God removing sin. 
And this is kind of an interesting way to, to show that. But you see this woman sitting in a basket being carried off by birds. It's, it's just the craziest picture if you try to picture it in your mind. But this measuring basket, the, the, like I said, the word, the, the literal word is ephah. It's the largest dry measure in Israel. So like I said, 39 quarts. So this is... This woman's described as wickedness. So not only is God going to deal with sin, but the very principle of wickedness, like the cause of sin, He's going to remove that. The Spirit of God removes sin. Reveals sin and removes sin. So what's the personal application for us? Right here. I think I'm, I want to say I said this last week. It was either last week or, or Wednesday, I can't remember. Did you know that God never reminds you of a past sin that's been forgiven? If you sin, and you're convicted of your sin, and you repent, you turn, turn away from that, you go, go to God and say, God, I've, I've, just, I've messed up, please forgive me. Please forgive me of this sin. And, and He does. But did you know that from that point, God doesn't bring that up to you again? But you know who does? The devil does. Our, our spiritual enemy. God doesn't remind you of sins that He's dealt with. That you've come to Him with your sin and, and received forgiveness. He doesn't do that. But that's a trick of the enemy. So the application here, not only does the Spirit reveal sin, the Spirit removes sin so that we should no longer be burdened with sin that we have sought forgiveness from God for a particular thing and then He forgives us and then He, he removes that. And, and so that's, uh, that's a, a way of of showing us the Spirit of God at work in our lives to help move us closer to Jesus. Because what would happen? I mean, let's just, I mean, hypothetically, what would happen? What would happen to your mindset? What would happen to your personality or to your, your, your mood or your demeanor? What would happen if all you ever did all day long was sit around and think about all the ways you failed? That would not be a positive thing, right? You'd be paralyzed. You wouldn't be able to do anything God wanted you to do because you'd be too concerned with all the ways you've already messed up. Well, guess what? That's kind of the, the enemy's plan. Just to let you in on that. It's like reading the playbook of the enemy. That's pretty much what he does. Okay? He doesn't have any new tricks because the old ones always work. Okay? That's not God's plan. It's the enemy's plan. God's plan is for you to be set free for some things. So you can move forward. Be more like Jesus. Live for Him. God reveals sin by His Spirit. He removes sin. Now, we get here to the last chapter, chapter 6, the first eight verses. The last, the eighth vision, these four chariots. So now we've seen some things that God's Spirit does, right? Conquers great obstacles, 
overcomes small beginnings, uses unlikely people, reveals sin, removes sin, but the Spirit also judges the nations without God, the Gentile nations. So when you get to this, this last picture of these four chariots, and, and here's what you're seeing. Judgment on the wickedness of the nations that have completely and consistently and continually turned their back on God. Like God keeps showing Himself and, and the people just continue, no, I don't, I don't need that, I don't want any part of that. So, what's the application for our world? People around us. All right, here, perfect opportunity. A perfect opportunity to, to give this example. So, uh, I took uh, my oldest daughter. It was her birthday, so we went went on a little trip. Went to see this um, comedian, John Christ. I don't know if you heard of John Christ. Um, he did some. He's kind of like Christian, but maybe not completely. I mean, as far as his comedy goes, you know. Anyway, so we go to this show, and uh, here's what he does at the very beginning. We're in this big auditorium. It's like, I don't know, 1,500 people maybe? And so he's, you know, he's, he's laughing, making jokes, and he goes, Hey, where's all my Christians in here? And, you know, a bunch of people clap and holler. And then right after that, he does the most odd thing. He says, All right, where's all my non-Christians and there was a pause. It's like, you know, because it's an awkward moment. Like, am I going to, yeah, I'm not a Christian. You know, but the woman sitting right beside me. Woo! Clapped her hand. It's like, oh, shoot. Okay. I, I never, I'd never experienced that before. You know, somebody's thrilled to not know Jesus. Clapping out loud. Okay, well, what do I need to do about that? <laughs> uh, this kind of puts me in a position then. And so the whole night, I was like, my, uh, my attention is split because the rest of the night, and this was early on, so the rest of the night I'm just kind of trying to take in what we're there to see and enjoy, and, you know, Elizabeth's with me, so it's like, let's have a good time. And, uh, but then the whole time there's just woman and her husband sitting to the right of us and she's just celebrating not knowing God. What, what, what do you do with that? Because here's what that means. There's no um, acknowledgement that there might be consequences for life. You know, there's uh, no accountability, no responsibility. Uh, I don't have to answer to anyone for my actions in, in life. Because, by the way, that's the, the, the great lie. That's why people don't want to believe in God. They don't want to be responsible. They don't want to be accountable. They, want, they don't want to think about, oh, I might have to stand before someone one day and give an account for all this. Instead of, well, I just want to live my life, do what I want, and no responsibility. Well, let me ask you this question. Is that principle true in any other realm of life 
at all? Does that even make logical sense? You're born, you got parents. Parents tell you what to do, you're accountable to them. You go to school, got teachers, administrators. There's rules. They tell you what you do. You don't follow the rules, you're accountable for that. You get out of school, you get a job, you got a boss. There's policies. You don't follow the policies, you're accountable for that. You drive down the road, there's police. There's speed limits, there's traffic laws, it's all kind of laws, right? You don't abide by them, you get pulled over, you're accountable. Is there any other context in life where you can expect to just be irresponsible and have no consequence and no accountability? Yet, in the most important part of your life, in spiritual things, you really want to believe there's no accountability? There's no consequence for anything that we do? Apart from Scripture, that doesn't even make good sense. That's not even logical. Right? It's not even logical. Everything in life has consequence, has accountability. And that comes from God. That's why there is accountability in all these other contexts. So what's our application? There is a day of judgment coming. And there's a flow through these prophecies, these visions that shows the order of things. So you get to the very end of the passage here. The end of chapter 6. The crowning of Joshua. And here's the maybe perhaps the most important or encouraging part of the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God renews our hope. The Spirit of God renews our hope. Talk about this building of the temple, this crowning of Joshua. And I want you to see something very interesting in verse 12, right here at the end. The Word of God, the Lord of hosts, says... I want you to look at the first three words in verse 12 after he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. He says, Behold the man whose name is the branch. But the first three words, Behold the man. You know where we're going to hear that again? Pontius Pilate, when he brings Jesus out before the people. God Almighty in flesh, the sinless sacrifice, beaten, mocked, insulted, spit on. You know what Pilate says? Behold the man. See, this, this whole prophecy is begging us to look at Jesus. Just, just look at Jesus. You got challenges, you got obstacles, you feel like a nobody, you got sin in your life, you're worried about judgment, accountability. Just look at Jesus. 
Just look at Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, in the, the Old Testament Scriptures go overboard to prompt us to look to Jesus. Go to Him in repentance and faith. Find forgiveness and peace. That, that's how this chapter of Zechariah ends. When, when you see the horses and the, the four chariots, this last vision, and you see, oh, the, these, chari- these horses that ran up here, they, they brought rest to my spirit. That's what the, that's what the Bible says. Verse 8. They've set my spirit at rest. And you get to the very end of chapter 6, and there's going to be peace. Verse 13. The counsel of peace shall be between them both. And who's them both? Between God and His people. Because of Christ. <laughs> it's just almost, you know, you read it and it's like, really? I mean, how, how, do, how do we have this in front of us for this long and we, we can't see it? You have a king and a priest. Zerubbabel's the functioning as the king. Joshua's functioning as the priest. But it's pointing us to the one who's going to be our prophet, priest, and king all in one person, Jesus Christ. And so everything about this prophecy is just screaming, look at Jesus. You want harmony? You want peace? Go to Jesus. You want forgiveness? Go to Jesus. You want salvation? Go to Jesus. You want uh, to overcome your obstacles by the Spirit of God? Go to Jesus. There's nothing in here that has a different answer. You go to Jesus with everything. All the time. For everything. Do we want peace? Do we want hope? Well, Jesus made Peace by the blood of His cross. So that that's where we got to go if that's what we want. Does that make sense? You understand, you understand what Jesus has done? This is a this is a, a prophecy given to Zechariah five hundred years before Jesus even came to this earth, and yet it's just screaming out the gospel message. It's it's begging us. Just look at Jesus. You need peace, you need forgiveness, you just need help. Go to Jesus. That's why we talked about this big picture in the Gospel story at the very beginning. When the world was created, when God spoke everything into existence, there was perfect peace and harmony on all levels. And then our rebellion against God, our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed, rebelled. They broke the peace they, they broke the harmony. And so there were consequences. Sin, the fall of mankind, the fall of everything. But ever since that point, God's been telling us, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to send My Son to take your place, to take your consequence, your responsibility, your penalty. He's going to take that for you. Every last bit. So that all who come to Christ by faith can be forgiven. Receive eternal life. 
That's the Gospel. That's why there's hope in the Gospel. That's why there's hope in Jesus. Because He dealt with all of this for us. So when we do get to that day of judgment, when we do stand, Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, it's appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. That's just how it is. So that way when we get to that day, we do stand before God and we have no defense. (laughs) Then Jesus stands up, steps in front of us and says, no, I took care of Him already. He's forgiven. What peace is that? How how can you have hope and peace apart from that? Apart from Christ. And by the way, that's why Jesus had to stand up. Because He's seated at the right hand of God. Because His work is complete. Just come to Jesus. It really is that simple. Just come to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.